You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 6th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, Germany crosses its red line on sending heavy weapons to help Ukraine. We'll examine the so-called sea change made by Chancellor Olaf Scholz in terms of taking a more forward role. Also ahead, President Joe Biden says up to 30,000 migrants every month could be allowed to cross into the US. We'll have the latest. And the EU's top diplomat visits Morocco, with his trip overshadowed by the so-called Qatargate scandal. Make no mistake, the European Parliament, dear colleagues, is under attack. European democracy is under attack. And our way of open, free, democratic societies are under attack. And Andrew Muller will be here to fill us in on the news stories we may have missed but need to know about. The citizens of the English seaside settlement of Scarborough learned rather more than they might have wished to vis-à-vis the sexual id of the walrus. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Kevin McCarthy is no closer to becoming Speaker of America's House of Representatives after losing an 11th vote. It's made this the most drawn-out Speaker contest since 1859. The Mexican army has arrested the drug cartel leader Ovidio Guzman, the son of Joaquin L. Chapo Guzman, an alleged opioid trafficker. The capture triggered a wave of violence on Thursday, leaving at least 18 people injured. And Ukraine has dismissed Vladimir Putin's order for a military ceasefire over the Orthodox Christmas period. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, major Western powers have decided to send armoured combat vehicles to Ukraine, a move Kiev's leadership has long asked for. A few hours ago, the United States and Germany revealed their plans to send Bradley vehicles and Marders, one day after the French President Emmanuel Macron made similar promises. Joining me now to look at this major development is Alex Kokhtarov, who's a risk analyst on Russia Ukraine and Eurasia at IHS Market, a provider of information and analytics for government and final markets, financial markets. A very good morning to you, Alex. Good morning. So this story is broken in the last, let's say, 12, 13 hours. Uh, what exactly have the United States and Germany promised to send to Ukraine? Um, well, the United States said that uh, it would be uh, providing Ukraine with quite a significant package of uh, 2.8 billion US dollars, which is to include uh, about 50 of the uh, Bradley uh, fighting vehicles. Uh, so the package is actually larger than just the uh, fighting vehicles. Uh, Germany said that it would be providing uh, Marder uh, infantry fighting vehicles, but also a Patriot uh, air defense system. Uh, Both uh, statements are quite significant. And just a day earlier, we've learned that France was, uh, 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 have said that uh, it was to uh, provide Ukraine with um, armored uh, vehicles as well. So it appears to me that there is a coordinated action by major Western 
countries. Uh, and um, the UK is likely to join in uh, quite soon with further announcement. We've said announcement from the Foreign Secretary cleverly yesterday that there will be uh, further military support to Ukraine. And there have been even hints about uh, tanks being provided to Ukraine, which would significantly improve uh, Ukrainian military capabilities. This is a big this is a big development, not just for the United States, which is upping its support for France, which is upping its support. But the big focus must be on Germany, where we've had Olaf Scholz, who was sworn in less than three months before Putin's army decided to roll over the border into Ukraine, has up until now exercised extreme caution and unwillingness to step up this this much. Why is this happening now? We obviously don't know for sure, but the fact that this is happening in a, in a coordinated manner by major Western countries would suggest to me that they are in possession of uh, classified intelligence, which would suggest that uh, there are some specific Russian plans, military plans, which have to be counteracted. Um, this, but this is again, you know, what what I would say. We do not know definitively, uh, but the fact that this is so coordinated by major Western countries would suggest to me that um, they have, they are probably in possession of intelligence that Russia uh, probably wants to conduct further military operations in Ukraine, and that's why Ukraine needs to be supported. Yesterday, U.S. President Biden said that. The war in Ukraine is at a critical point, um, and uh, this further tells me that uh, this is um, uh, uh, that this is based on intelligence uh, gathering and sharing. So that's the practical argument sorted as to why Germany has stepped up. There is a threat that people believe they know about, but the fact is that politically for Germany, this is huge. It is, um, and. Um, it, I think that Germany uh, is realizing that the pre-war realities are no longer something that we can potentially come back and that the severing of relations with Russia uh, is pretty much a permanent feature. Um, Germany has uh, stopped uh, buying Russian energy uh, as of uh, end of 2022, um, the German foreign ministry reported on 1st of January that uh, Germany was no longer importing any of energy sources, whether coal, oil or gas from Russia. And this is a very significant departure. So a lot has changed in the past 11 months. And um, the decision making is reflecting these changes. What does this now mean for Germany in terms of its role in European security and defence? Um, obviously, uh, Germany wants to play a significant role in the in the European decision making politically, and it it is the major economy in Europe uh, and uh, within NATO. There have been a lot of criticisms of Germany in the past that Germany uh, is not spending enough on uh, the defense and security um, compared to some other countries uh, in Europe, including the UK. So this, again, I'm not a Germany expert, but uh, to me it would suggest that uh, there are changes and that there is realization of completely new realities by the current German government and uh, they are acting 
very much in a coordinated fashion with NATO allies, uh, which would suggest cohesion to me. Let's uh, move to another story which has been moving quite a lot on Ukraine and Russia in the last couple of days, which is this 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 attack just after midnight on New Year's Day when Ukraine launched a strike against Russian forces. The target was in the city of Makiva in the, in the Russian-occupied region of Donetsk. There was a college building used to station Russian soldiers. It took a direct hit. Um, the, the backlash, the scale of the attack was such that it was impossible for Russia to hold its tongue. But the fact remains is that a rare blame game has now ensued, hasn't it? Questions being raised about lots of decisions that the Russians are taking. Well, this strike on Makivka um, was one of the many strikes on the Russian uh, military bases uh, within the occupied Ukrainian territories in eastern and southern Ukraine in recent days, uh, including around the new year. Uh, And the scale of Russian military casualties uh, in the past uh, couple of weeks have increased to such a level that the Russian authorities can no longer hide those. Uh, In December, the Ukrainian MOD said that uh, the Russian military losses in Ukraine um, have uh, have been more than 17,000 people, which is a huge number in just one month. This is more than the Soviet army lost in the entire war in Afghanistan, which lasted for nearly 10 years. Um, so it's it's pretty much impossible for Russia to hide the scale of casualties in this war in Ukraine. Uh, and um, Ukraine believes that this is, uh, that it is in, uh, it, it is very much within its position to strike Uh, legitimate military targets, including locations where Russian soldiers are uh, located. And um, uh, yes, it does uh, cause some problems for the Russian leadership as they have to explain of why uh, this is happening and why these scales, uh, why these casualties are so significant. But in my view, the Kremlin is willing to uh, tolerate very significant casualties by the Russian forces to achieve um, their military objectives in Ukraine. And the fact that uh, on 2nd of January, just after the new year, Putin ordered to uh, include civilian hospitals into the uh, treatment of uh, wounded uh, military personnel is an indicator of that. What we seem to be seeing in in addition to this is the... very, very loud supporters of uh, the war and of Vladimir Putin, the likes of the commentator Yevgeny Norin and the very well-known Russian war correspondent Semyon Pegov, have all highlighted this uh, attack by the Ukrainians on Russia and have blamed not the Ukrainians, but Russia's own military failures, such as the suggestion that there's an, a large amount of ammunition stored next to where the soldiers were staying, uh, and also uh, the indication that the Russians were using mobile phones uh, on, an, on a Ukrainian telephone network, which was very easy to give their um, uh, location away. The, it seems rather strange, doesn't it, that these such hawkish pro-Putin voices are now beginning to ask questions. Why do you think that's happening? Well, there is this section in the Russian society uh, of extreme hawks who uh, who want more war on Ukraine and who are unhappy uh, with the 
um, with the way the war is ongoing and not just, you know, more war on Ukraine, but more war on the West. There are types on Russian television uh, who are talking about uh, the uh, about Russia uh, needing to attack cities such as London or Washington, D.C., um, because they claim that this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine, but rather Russia and the West or Russia and NATO. Uh, so there is this section in the Russian society who are disappointed by the fact that Russia is not uh, using all of the resources available for this war and is fighting, in their view, half-heartedly. Um, and they want more war and more war efforts to be applied in this uh, war in Ukraine. That's why they're blaming the Kremlin and Putin for lack of decisiveness uh, in these military decisions. Alex Kocharov from IHS Market, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. You were The Globalist. here in London, 2.13am in Havana. Now, up to 30,000 people every month could be allowed to cross the border into the US. Those are under plans announced by President Biden. Mr Biden has also said he'll visit the border on Sunday en route to Mexico, while he'll take part in the North American Leaders' Summit. Well, the president is under increasing pressure to deal with surges of migrants, especially from the likes of Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela and Haiti. I'm joined now by Dr Christopher Sabatini, who's Senior Fellow for Latin America at Chatham House. A very good morning to you, Christopher. Good morning. So just explain to us, outline what's actually happening at the US border at the moment in terms of who's coming, how many migrants. Well, there's been a real shift in terms of migration recently. Uh, in recent months, for example, actually Cuba and Nicaragua represent uh, 35% of the illegal border crossings on the US-Mexico border. And this is a shift. Before, uh, it was primarily coming from Mexico and uh, from uh, what's called the northern tier of Central America, which is El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. So we're seeing a shift in that. And there's also obviously the crisis in Haiti, uh, and which is really melting down and becoming and really even more of a stateless society than it was before. Um, and then there's been a decline in Venezuela because of a similar policy they instituted that the, uh, Biden's proposing now in November. So this policy change, which I can explain, is is really attempting to address the the, the, the real demographic and, and sending shifts that we're seeing at the border in the U.S. and Mexico. So this new policy will apply to asylum seekers from what Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti and, and, and Venezuela. I mean, how... How big a problem has President Biden got on his hands here? He's got a, a large problem. For, just for example, uh, in November last year, um, 68,044, according to the Customs and Border Patrol, uh, Cubans and Nicaraguans attempted to cross the border. Again, that's 68,000 people in one month alone attempted to cross the border illegally. Now, what he's attempting to do under this, very controversially under, under Title 42, which was a Trump policy that allowed the U.S. to reject asylum seekers based on a health concern. So it's, it's a, it, it is a, somewhat a holdover from the last administration. What he's trying to do is to regularize this flow and to have people from the countries that you mentioned, Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, uh, apply for asylum in their home countries and declare basically that they will uh, be turned back at the border if they should uh, not apply it in their own countries and attempt to cross the border illegally. 
Will it work? You know, it's interesting. It, 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 as controversial as it is, it has worked in Venezuela. As I mentioned, they had already started this policy in Venezuela last year. They announced it in October and it's implemented in November. And uh, at, at the time, in, in, uh, in September, uh, 33,000 Venezuelans were attempting to cross the border uh, illegally at that time. Uh, and that's plunged down to just a handful, just a, a couple hundred. Um, and the rest are applying through legal channels. So it, it is working because it's it's offering, if you will, a sort of more regularized process to uh, bring in these people who are then guaranteed, uh, basically they're put on parole, they're allowed to enter the country legally, they're allowed to reunite with relatives, they're allowed to gain a work visa. Um, so it is a, a process to do this. The, the problem is, is it's um, you know under a very controversial regulation that Trump had put in that was intended to, to turn people back at the border. The difficulty that President Biden faces is arguably the difficulty that every single president faces, which is that people who are pro-immigration say that the changes restrict the right of so many people to, to claim asylum and effectively will stop people who have a genuine claim from getting through, whereas the Republicans and, and people on the, on the further right are suggesting that actually that allowing 30,000 people across the border every month is a headline which they can really seize upon in terms of elections. That's exactly right, Emma. This is there. The truth is, there's no winning strategy right now for immigration in the United States. It has become a third rail in U.S. politics. Uh, again, for as you say, for immigration advocates, the idea that this is under a Trump policy is is really odious. Uh, and for uh, Republicans, this is uh, you know the just the number of thirty thousand coming in, which is de facto what's already entering the border from each of these countries, uh, effectively, uh, right now, is is you know a, a banner headline for them. That allows them to rail against immigration generally and call the border broken. The, the, the twist here, which is kind of interesting, is, is that in all these cases, except for Haiti, uh, in, in Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, these people are fleeing uh, communist or socialist countries. And so there's a political dynamic here as well. Obviously, it reflects the real flows, which is Biden can say, look, you know, as much as the, the Republicans try to label him as being a socialist and you know, uh, you know, uh, a, a closet communist even, is that he's giving refuge to people who are fleeing, fleeing truly destructive socialist countries and economies. So it does give him a little bit of a partisan advantage in this case. How is the how are these plans being received in countries such as Venezuela where <laughs> I mean and, you know and obviously Mr Biden is on his way down to Mexico this weekend. Yeah, they are um you know, there's a problem here too. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, these are uh, communist countries with whom the U.S. has very little relations. We we don't have an embassy in Venezuela. Uh, we just actually just this week opened up our consular services in Cuba that had been suspended during the Trump administration. So first of all, within those countries, we're offering them an avenue to enter the United States legally, but we actually don't have the institutional infrastructure in many of these countries. Our embassy in Nicaragua is down to bare bones as well. So within these countries, it's it's seen as a, a good opportunity but one that's a little distant for a lot of people. Um, and we'll see how this is received when, when Biden goes to Mexico. It's, you know, it, this will require the cooperation of Mexican authorities, which they so far have been cooperating. They've uh, implemented Trump's policy. Oddly enough, uh, the president in Mexico, AMLO, as he's known, has been a, an odd partner, uh, despite his leftist leanings, uh, for Trump. But we'll have to see. I think in many ways there's a, there's a real need um, and recognized need uh, within uh, Latin America that the U.S. has to fix its broken uh, immigration policy. And there's a hope that this could be a path to doing that. I mean, will this be one of the dominating subjects when he goes down to the American Leaders Summit? I mean, he will be meeting the likes of AMLO, won't he? 
Yes, it'll, it's what's called the Three Amigos Summit. It'll be the president, prime minister of Canada, the president of the United States, and the president of Mexico. Um, and, and, you know, obviously Mexico is the gateway country uh, for uh, illegal immigration and to the United States. Uh, and it is, you know, immigration is really always the central issue uh, in U.S.-Latin American relations. It doesn't matter whether it's Mexico or Argentina. Um, you know, how U.S. treats citizens from those countries is a very important issue to every elected leader in those countries. Uh, there are other issues on the table among the three amigos. Uh, one of them is actually an energy bill, energy law that AMLO has passed that has uh, given preference to Mexican um, uh, energy companies and actually uh, undermines its commitments to un under COP. Uh, so there are other issues. Trade is another one. But in drugs, Mexico just arrested the son of El Chapo, uh, which is causing a wave of violence in his home state of Sinaloa. So there are a number of issues, but immigration is always at the top of the agenda. Just tell us a little bit more generally, finally, about the relationship among the three amigos after the departure of Donald Trump are things have things been normalized you know, this is interesting, Emma. It's obviously between uh, um, Pierre, um, Trudeau and between and and uh, Biden, the relations are much closer. Uh, but oddly enough, between AMLO and Biden, the 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 relations are much uh, more strained. Trump basically gave AMLO a pass on a number of things, such as his attacks on institutions, such as the um, the Electoral Institute, um, the uh, energy bills, and and climate change uh, measures. And, and Trump is kind of, I mean, rather, AMLO is kind of chafing under this new accountability that Biden's demanding from him. So, you know, what you thought would be an odd pairing of the two amigos uh, has actually, uh, between Trump and AMLO, was actually working at a certain level. It was giving AMLO a free pass to crush or at least weaken checks and balances. And Trump got what he wanted, which was uh, better border control from AMLO. And now Biden's demanding a lot more in terms of accountability of the Mexican president. And um, the Mexican president doesn't like that. Dr. Christopher Sabatini, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's programme. The citizens of the English seaside settlement of Scarborough learned rather more than they might have wished to vis-à-vis -vis the sexual id of the walrus. As unfortunately have the rest of us. We'll be hearing more from Andrew Muller a little bit later in what we learned. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Seven twenty-three here in London. Now, who would have thought that a face-to-face -face meeting between Brussels' top diplomat and the Moroccan foreign minister could garner such interest from the whole world? Well, it just so happens that Josep Borrell's current trip to Rabat comes weeks after Belgian police raided several addresses used by European lawmakers and other officials, finding one and a half million euros in cash with potential links to Qatar and. Morocco. Well, I'm joined now by Suzanne Lynch, who's Politico Europe's chief Brussels correspondent and a regular voice. A very good morning to you, Suzanne. 
Good morning, Emma. Well, this was all rather awkward yesterday. Could you just recap what happened uh, in terms of the raids and, and why we are in this situation? Yes, well, these raids uh, took place in Brussels in December and we saw Belgian police uh, uncover stashes of cash, essentially, in different locations across the city. Um, around 20 raids took place and uh, four people uh, were charged with offences. Um, now, three of those remained in, in jail, including a sitting MEP, Eva Kayali a Greek MEP, and also a former MEP, Antonio Panzeri. And uh, he uh, founded an NGO, a non-governmental organisation, back in 2019. That NGO is now coming under huge scrutiny as uh, uh, an an organisation that's been at the centre of this. It got in front of the European Parliament for various uh, sittings, etc. And uh, it seems to have been used as some kind of a conduit for uh, pro-Qatari Uh, expression sentiments and potentially as something more. So all this has been brought to a head and is currently ongoing. So we now have the Brussels top diplomat and the Moroccan foreign minister meeting yesterday in Rabat, um, ostensibly to discuss uh, ever closer ties and partnerships between the EU and Morocco. How much did this scandal actually dominate proceedings? Yes, well, Morocco has also been named um, not as centrally as Qatar, and we do need to say that Qatar is denying all allegations of corruption and bribery in this, but Morocco has also been named as a possible country that was seeking to influence the parliament or MEPs in some way. Um, So, for example, in the extradition request that the Belgian authorities sent to in relation to Panzeri, this former MEP's wife and daughter in Italy, uh, the Belgian prosecutor said that Morocco's ambassador, a Moroccan ambassador, had been sending gifts to Panzeri's uh, relatives. And so that's one of the mentions we have uh, that Morocco is is part of this scandal. So uh, the EU is saying that Borrell, the top diplomat who travels around the world, that his visit to Morocco uh, had already been planned um, and was a normal, integral part of his job. Uh, but and they've also said, which is is true, that the investigation is ongoing. But this has this visit, the timing of it, of this visit has raised eyebrows. Uh, he Burrell couldn't escape questions on this when he was in Rabat. He said um, he made a joke, if you like, about the country's uh, strong performance in the World Cup. Uh, but he also said that uh, he raised the issue of these uh, corruption charges, saying there's no impunity. And um, the accusations are very serious, but adding that he needed to wait for the results of the investigations. Indeed. I mean, he, sh- he shut it down hard, having previously clearly taken some very clear advice about what should and shouldn't be said. I think he said there can be no impunity for corruption. We will have to wait for the results of the ongoing investigation. That said, I mean, Morocco is EU's top economic and trade partner in, in Africa. What does this do for relations now? Well, it does. I mean, it it does raise questions indeed about the EU's whole external strategy. Uh, For example, it is engaging with countries like uh, like Morocco, like Qatar, like Azerbaijan, where there are questions. And mainly at the moment, it's to do with energy. The EU is trying to wean its way off Russian gas and has been looking to alternative partners. But for some time over the last few months, there have been questions about, well, why try and reduce dependency on one autocratic regime only to build up dependencies with other countries that may have you know dubious human rights records so this is a kind of an ethical dilemma for the eu 
Uh, and I think it's going to continue to dog the EU going forward now in 2023 as it seeks to intensify relations uh, with countries, particularly um, in in the Arab world. Um, Politico has been reporting um, about the the consequences of this scandal, not just outside the European Union, but within Italy. Um, Mm. And there's there's a thought that this actually might have some sort of impact on the regional elections in Milan and Rome. I mean, we're getting quite local here, but how much could... What is happening in Brussels with connections to allegedly to, to Qatar and, and Morocco have to do with what's happening in Milan and Rome? Yeah, well, Italy is at the centre of this. Um, a lot of the figures involved in the scandal are Italian. So the former MEP I mentioned, Antonio Panzeri, he's a very well-known figure in Milan. Um, and his his family that I mentioned, his, his wife, his daughter, who've also been uh, charged, they are based in Milan. His, his daughter is in her 30s. She's a lawyer uh, in Northern Italy in Milan. So they're very well known in, in that city. Um, and also another key figure is uh, Georgie, who's um, the partner of the Greek MEP I mentioned, Ava Kayali. Even though she's been getting a lot of publicity and she remains in jail here in Brussels, her partner, she co-parents their two-year-old child with, with him. He used to work for Panzeri and he is also Italian. Uh, so there are a lot of, um, and there are more people who have been embroiled in the scandal who have not been charged, it's important to say, um, that are from Italy. So uh, this story is a, is a big kind of local story in Italy and indeed Greece, because in, Kaya, in Kayali's case, uh, Greek prosecutors have moved to seize assets, for example, uh, owned by Kayali and some of her family members. So, you know, you have these parallel investigations. We're hearing now that Belgian police, Belgian prosecutors are now going to Italy to cooperate with prosecutors there. So it is very much at the centre of the story. Suzanne Lynch, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. The time is just nudging 7.30 here in London. Time for a quick look at today's other headlines. The US House of Representatives still has no speaker. The new Republican majority has failed after two days of voting to try to elect one of the most important figures in US politics. Kevin McCarthy is the leading contender, but has now lost 11 rounds of voting. Ukraine has dismissed an announcement by Vladimir Putin imposing a ceasefire to coincide with a Russian Orthodox Christmas. Ukraine's foreign minister has said the announcement cannot and will not be taken seriously. And armed men have taken hostages, burned vehicles and stormed an airport in northern Mexico after police captured the son of the drug lord El Chapo. Ovidio Guzman is one of the world's most wanted cartel leaders and the son of the drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. His arrest prompted such violence that the airport in the town of Culiacan had to close and people were told to stay indoors. This is a Globalist. Stay tuned. In a moment, we'll be crossing to Zurich to do Vorstrasse 90 to have a look at the newspapers. But first, just in case you've missed anything this week, don't worry. Andrew Muller's here with what we learned. We learned this week of what felt ominously like the arrival of 2023's guiding metaphor. For we, well specifically the citizens of the English seaside settlement of Scarborough, learned rather more than they might have wished to vis-à-vis the sexual id of the walrus. 
For we learned in the ebbing hours of 2022 that the shoreline of Scarborough's Harbour had been unexpectedly adorned by a large male Arctic walrus. Which proceeded, presumably by way of relaxing after its long swim, to indulge in actions which caused onlooking parents to frantically improvise placatory answers to the innocent, wide-eyed question, Mummy and or Daddy, what is the walrus doing? As if this wasn't sufficient to thoroughly remove the romance from the looming New Year for Scarborough's, local authorities decided to cancel the town's New Year fireworks for fear of alarming the creature, or perhaps just putting him off his stroke. We further learned that the locals had named the walrus Thor, as indeed he will be if he doesn't give it a rest. We're here all year. Try the clams, cockles and mussels, which we learned while researching this bit is what walruses eat. Satirical, yet informative. We learned anyway that Thor had wearied of what Scarborough had to offer fairly swiftly, wouldn't be the first, etc., and had continued north, next spotted in Blythe, napping on a pontoon at a local yacht club. And we learned, or at least deduced, that Thor had clearly done some preparatory research before embarking upon his voyage along England's northeast coast, for he had wisely skipped Hartlepool. This observation is not any reflection on modern-day Hartlepool, and a big hello to our many listeners there, but an extremely cheap joke alluding to the persistent legend that during the Napoleonic Wars of some while ago, the denizens of Hartlepool tried, convicted, sentenced, and hanged a shipwrecked monkey in the belief that it was a French spy. So it is anyone's guess what the Hartlepoolians would have made of an entire walrus. However... On a jet plane, don't know when I'll be back again. Sticking with the subject of bellicose oafish, mannerless and somewhat corpulent creatures fleeing northwards, we learned that recently unelected Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro was not minded to stick around and hand over the pertinent ceremonial sash to his successor, as a good sport should. We learned that like many a cranky, tangerine-hued retiree before him, Bolsonaro had decamped to Florida, the and-finally state, and that led us to learn, not for the first time, that there are few more reliable ways to pad out a whimsical news monologue than typing the phrase Florida Man into Google News, from which we learned that a Florida man has been summonsed after attending a basketball game with a Pomeranian dog dyed to resemble the Pokemon character Pikachu. What? understand that. Solid start to 2023, Florida man, and we, for one whimsical news monologue, are very much looking forward to another productive year of working together. Can I take your order, please? But we digress. We further learned from Bolsonaro's Florida flit something of the culinary preferences of the runaway president after he was spotted dining in a Kentucky Fried Chicken outlet, an image which furnished us with two possible punchlines. One was about cannibalism, chicken-eating-chicken sort of thing, which, to be honest, may still need work, the other along the lines that Bolsonaro perhaps wished to interact with the only colonel who will still take his orders. Probably what's easiest all round is if you download the file of this episode, clip out the gag you like least, and then play it again. Why should we do all the work? 
And we learn that every indication is that the United States Republican Party intends to spend this year, as it has spent the several years preceding, having a normal one. Thank you, Madam Clerk. I rise today to nominate Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the People's House. We learn not only of the lengths to which Congressional Republicans as a whole will go to enable themselves to continue brawling over absolute nonsense instead of doing any actual governing or anything, but we also learn that the GOP spiral into lunacy may have some further helter to skelter, judging by the quality of their new intake. For we learned quite a lot about this guy. Look. I understand everybody wants to nitpick at me. Specifically, we learned that George Santos, now representing New York's 3rd District, and well done, New York's 3rd District, is not, counter to various claims he made while campaigning, a university graduate, a property tycoon, a Wall Street financier, Jewish, the son of a 9-11 victim, or possibly actually called George. We learned that he is, however, wanted in Brazil for using a stolen checkbook. Still, if there's one thing we have learned before now, and from which we can derive considerable consolation, it's that clowns, frauds and grifters from New York hardly ever get anywhere in American politics. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Andrew, thank you. You're listening to The Globalist. Let's head to Zurich now to have a look at today's newspapers. I am delighted to say that in our studio in Dufourstrasse is Emily Isserhauer, who's Programme Coordinator for Peace Mediation at ETH Zurich and a regular voice. Good morning, Emily. How's Zurich looking this morning? It's good morning. It's looking um, quite okay, but I have to say I was just 10 days in southern Italy enjoying great food and sun. So even if it's not so bad compared to that, um, yeah, it's a bit worse. (laughs) Okay, you think I'm going to give you an easy ride after you've just said that? (laughs) How was was southern Italy? Was it wonderful? Wonderful. Good food, good drinks. Wonderful. Welcome back. Thanks for coming back around the microphone to to fill us in on what's happening in the papers. Um, I think the one thing that we do have to talk about is the way that the world is reacting to Kevin McCarthy's absolutely impossible task of getting elected, but his impossible um, refusal to actually give up. No, that's right. And I I was watching the live stream yesterday as I was having dinner and and it was just entertaining and then worrying at the same time but um, no just perhaps a, a slightly different angle on the story um, Helsinki in Sanomat the Finnish um, main newspaper coming out of Helsinki analyzes the potential implications of the impasse in, in, in Congress on US foreign policy and more specifically when it comes to US support um, to Ukraine and their assessment is that while um, the impasse does indeed stall everything in terms of decision making even when it comes to swearing in lawmakers, it's unlikely, at least in the immediate term, to have any real significant impact on U.S. foreign policy. And that's because there's a relatively rare moment in in history that there's quite broad consensus um, within Congress and in in the U.S. when it comes to some of the broad strokes of U.S. foreign policy. So there's bipartisan support when it comes to a very tough policy on China. There's bipartisan support uh, when it comes to even a tougher policy on Russia. So even if there have been some criticisms voiced among um, the Republican detractors about what they see as quote-unquote reckless spending on Ukraine, 
they're unlikely to be able to change the course of UN foreign policy on that. And in slightly more practical terms, the current Ukraine support packages have been secured until September of this year. So even if the impasse continues for a little longer, um, there's no immediate urgency on that front either. So logistically, things are, are, are pretty much in a, on, a, on an even keel. But in terms of the reputational damage that US politics is is enduring because of this. I mean, this is what, it's the 6th of January today, two years ago today with the Capitol Hill riots. And it was at that point that there were really deep questions being asked about how stable American democracy was. And when you have a bunch of lawmakers who really want to break all the rules, effectively what we're seeing in the House of Representatives is, is arguably a kind of like an end result of that. That's it precisely. Um, however, there seems to be at least two narratives, perhaps there are a multitude of different narratives, but there is the US story and then even um, President Biden has talked about the reputational damage that this will do um, to the US. But then there is the non-US perspective as well. And this is at least um, the position taken um, by Helsing in Sanomat saying that, look, um, the US's role as an exemplary democracy has already waned a long time ago, be it due to earlier budget crisis, um, polarization of US society, the capital attacks. Um, so the world is not necessarily looking to the US as an example of democracy anymore. Perhaps on other issues, yes. Um, but when it comes to model democracies, um, the examples are found elsewhere in the world. We'll be joining us on Monocle on Sunday in uh, in a couple of days time when Emily, I think we'll be wondering to see how many counts that Kevin McCarthy has had a go at trying to become <laughs> the speaker. We might be able to put a bet on it. Um, let's move on to coverage. Yesterday, there was widespread coverage of the funeral of Pope Benedict. Um, how has that been received in Switzerland? Because here in the United Kingdom, it, it was sort of rather overshadowed by a, a royal story, which was rather baffling, I think, for lots of us. <laughs> no, indeed. And actually, that's precisely it, I think. Um, so I was reading both the New York Times and NZZ um, uh, here in Switzerland, um, and, and they both came to the realisation the funeral unfolded, um, but as you mentioned, uh, it was overshadowed by many other instances and, and NZZ talks about um, interviews they did on the streets of um, Rome uh, yesterday and people were more likely to talk about the start of the Serie A football season and that that was unfolding um, in Rome at the um, same time. Um, so in terms of the style, the attention it received and the potential impact on the church, NZZ right that one, the style was very subdued, that was was um, apparently at the request of, of late Pope Benedict um, himself, even though many of his supporters perhaps wanted a more festive or celebratory, perhaps more opulent occasion to mark his um, a passing. Um, and But also in terms of attendance, um, there were only around 50,000 mourners gathered um, in um, uh, the St. Peter's Square in Vatican, which was significantly less than, uh, for instance, in 2005 when John Paul um, II was buried, when somewhere between one and three million mourners gathered in Rome. Does that, uh, I mean, does that suggest that we're becoming an increasingly godless lot? Uh, that could be that could be the case, um, but perhaps it also speaks to um, the unusual situation we found ourselves in when there were two popes, living popes, um, at the same time, which was something very unusual, hadn't happened since um, the 1400s, um, and perhaps the distinction or the division within the Catholic Church, so that both Entertet and and, and um, the New York Times speak to this, um, the division within the Catholic Church. So you had essentially two figureheads within the church. 
Benedict representing perhaps the more conservative wing of the church and um, incumbent Francis, the more liberal or progressive wing um, of the church. So perhaps um, it has something to do with that, that there were two wings. And, and, and it seems, um, according to at least NZZ, um, that the wing under uh, Pope Francis is perhaps um, increasing in its popularity, but also in terms of some practical considerations. So if you look at the College of Cardinals, for instance, that will eventually elect the next pope, um, there are more cardinals that have been appointed by Pope Francis than Pope Benedict, and, and that dynamic will, of course, only increase in Pope Francis's favour, if um, so to say. Let's move on to a little bit of country branding and how we should be saying the name, was it Turkey or Turkey? Now, um, the United States diplomats have agreed to a change in the spelling, which means that we're all going to be looking for trying to find the two little dots above a U on our keyboard a little bit more in the future. <laughs> That's right, we'll have to practice our umlaut uh, keyboard um, skills in the future. No, indeed. So yesterday, um, in a rather subtle way, um, the State Department, when they released a statement about the Islamic State group, um, they wrote about uh, joint actions being taken by the United States and Turkey. So this is, of course, um, the new spelling um, that President Erdogan of Turkey or Turkey um, announced in June of last year when he asked all countries um, to uh, using the Latin script to change the spelling um, of their um, country's name. And this was um, not least uh, because of the confusion it causes in English uh, when it comes to Turkey, the bird, um, and, and some of the unfortunate associations related to that. It's an, it's an unusual thing that it, in a time when there are an awful lot more things re- preoccupying our minds, that, it, that now Turkey or Turkey should decide that it wants us all to start ch- calling it something different. I mean, what is the, what is the hope that Turkey, or Turkey, I better learn, um, <laughs> ho- hopes to achieve from this? No, absolutely. It's part of um, country branding and simultaneously with this decision. And I just happened to be uh, on a a Turkish Airlines flight. As this was announced, they had an entire tourism branding saying hello, Turkey. And and so it comes with the country branding, of course. But it's not so unusual. So we've had recent uh, rebrandings. The Netherlands has dropped Holland in its um, official um, name as well. Macedonia, for political reasons, became North Macedonia related to its dispute with Greece. Um, Swaziland, for historical reasons, became Eswatini back in 2018. Um, and Ivory Coast as well, which um, we uh, often forget, does not recognize Ivory Coast as its official name, but um, insists that Cote d'Ivoire, the French version of the name, needs to be used in all official um, statements. So again, it's uh, not too uncommon um, whether it has real impact in terms of rebranding Turkey or Turkey. Um, I would uh, not be too hopeful uh, when it comes to that. Thank you for that. Uh, finally, it is Epiphany today. So, um, as well as the beginning, you know, the, of, of another month of, of wonderful celebration, um, it's a time where we will all be cramming our Christmas trees into a duvet cover and trying to, in my case, forcing it down a fourth floor lift. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, uh, how you phrased it, you seem to be a pro already, Emma, because um, today, a weary um, pro. Helsing in Sanomat, again, the newspaper out of Helsinki, interviewed at the head of the Finnish Christmas Tree Farmers Association. Something new, I, I did not know that existed before um, this morning, um, because indeed um, every other household in Finland has some sort of a Christmas tree, and today is the day when they will throw them out. Um, so they interviewed the head of the. Association 
association to see what's the proper way to do it. And, and there are two important things. One is to recycle it um, so that it can be used for energy. So in the Finnish context, this means you can leave it outside your apartment complex. So um, the waste um, or recycling uh, uh, staff will come and pick it up. Or you can take it to a recycling center yourself or you can use it to heat your sauna or, or your chimney, what have you. So you should use it, not just um, toss it. And secondly, and this is where the duvet cover comes in, they ask for tips on how to avoid the needles getting everywhere in your apartment building as you take it down downstairs. Um, so one is you can cut the branches and put them in bags um, before you take the tree out. You can even, apparently, uh, it's being sold these days, um, you can have a buy a transportation bag for your Christmas tree. Or as you pointed out already, you can use a duvet cover to wrap your tree with and then you take it out and all the needles will be uh, let outside um, and not inside your building. Practical advice from Emily Sauer. Thank you so much indeed for joining us on the line from Zurich. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's talk business now. Here's David Hodari, Monocle's business editor. A very good morning to you. Morning. Good to have you in the studio. Uh, what's caught your eye? Uh, so this morning, the first thing that's caught my eye is the um, is the UK government legit. Well planned legislation, it's quite controversial, uh, this anti-strike bill that will enforce minimum levels of service across several sectors of the UK economy. Um, and essentially, it will force key parts of the public sector, like schools, transportation and the NHS, to provide a base level of service during strikes and uh, give bosses in those industries the power to fire those employees if those minimum service levels aren't met. This is an astonishing controversial um, uh, bill but it is at coming as at a time when every time you leave your house here in, in in England at the moment you work out whether you're going to have a train whether you're going to be able to get on the tube whether if you're in London whether you're going to be able to have an ambulance if something dreadful happens to you because there is a huge raft of strikes taking place here in the UK um, but many people are suggesting that actually taking making it almost a criminal offence well a sort of a, a civil offence to to actually take a strike is is not the way forward absolutely I mean obviously this does come at a time of mass strikes in the UK and I share the frustrations of all the people across the country who are uh, struggling uh, to live their normal daily lives but it will also do little to mollify uh, those trade unions. Uh, who have already claimed that the government has done little to discuss their grievances at a time of high inflation when their wages are dropping in real terms. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, it's going to be quite uh, quite a tough fight uh, on both sides of the UK legislatures uh, to see whether this is going to pass or not. How is this likely to play out? So first and foremost, the unions have obviously vowed to fight tooth and nail to stop it. And in the Commons, the Labour Party won't back it. So Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, has vowed to reverse the bill if it passes and if he wins the next general election, which he currently looks more likely than not to do so. Um, the bill is also expected to face opposition in the House of Lords and cannot be implemented at all until a consultation period has been completed. Uh, let's move to a story which obviously has been dominating the headlines in terms of the effect of the Ukraine conflict on our bills and our, on our fuel prices. Um, 
there has been a drop in natural gas prices right across Europe, which I suspect has surprised an awful lot of us, having all been warned and 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 you know, told to expect enormous jumps. What's happened here? So, first and foremost, it's, it's the mild weather across Europe and the UK, and uh, it was, for example, 19 degrees in Warsaw the other day. And we had the news yesterday, I think, that the UK's average annual temperature last year rose above 10 degrees Celsius for the first time, which is obviously very worrying from a climate change perspective. But from the perspective of, of, of you know, citizens, homeowners, businesses across Europe uh, needing to, to turn up the radiators this winter, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, so people are using less of it, essentially. Um, and what is this actually having a sort of the, the longer term business prospects? Because there have been warnings from governments left, right and centre that the, the governments that have been able to support companies and individuals in terms of pay, paying their bills will no longer have to do that. That's at least happening here in the United Kingdom. Does that sort of put things on a slightly more even keel? A little bit, yes. I mean, obviously, it takes a while for these prices from the futures financial markets to feed through into household bills and, and what governments are paying. And But you're absolutely right. Various European governments have uh, had been very worried about Russia holding the West to ransom this winter if it was particularly cold. But um, given the warmer weather, that hasn't necessarily been the case. Governments have been making fairly good pro- progress in filling up their stocks this winter, and they're probably going to accelerate that now that the prices have dropped, uh, with futures prices having hit their lowest levels since Moscow sent the tanks into Ukraine. Uh, finally, we always love a flying taxi story here on Monocle 24. Just just bring us the latest from flying taxi news. Of course. Well, who doesn't love a flying taxi? Love a flying taxi. By which you don't necessarily mean uh, strapping a propeller to a black cab, but um, it's, it's more that there's been a huge wave of investment into the electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft market, which is not the catchiest phrase, I'll give you that. It's more commonly referred to as EV tolls, which is also not particularly catchy, but easier to say for me on the radio. Um, and these these taxis work like um, drones with tilting rows of propellers that lift off vertically. And we've seen the news that Stellantis, which is the world's fifth biggest car maker, uh, is investing $150 million in a company called Arch Aviation, which is one of these EV toll companies that's nearing commercialisation. Can't wait. David Hadari, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. You're with Monocle 24. in Singapore, which is where we head to now to hear about Art Week. And joining me from Singapore is Rena Davy, who's an arts journalist and art market columnist. Welcome, Rena. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good to have you Thank with you. us. Yes, thanks for having me back. We've got a little bit of a delay, but I'm sure we will manage. So just tell us a little bit about Art Week. Um, yeah, so um, maybe i give a bit of a background on how um, Singapore is currently uh, experiencing uh, experiencing a great deal of international interest um, in terms of um, its art market. So this is uh, due to the city-state recently becoming a go-to base in Asia for global companies, as well as wealthy individuals, families and businesses from across the region. And this is happening because of the relaxed COVID restrictions here and the country's long-standing reputation as an international finance and trading hub. 
So what's happened is that as the world has opened up, Singapore has become increasingly perceived as one of the most progressive economies globally. So when I was reporting uh, on the Asian art market this past year for Art News, I, I spoke to a number of dealers and auction specialists, uh, mostly from Hong Kong, who observed that wealthy collectors from across Asia were increasingly settling in Singapore and using it as their base. And um, so this has kind of culminated in um, all the interest and attention that is focusing on Singapore. And uh, what can only be described as perfect timing, um, ArtSG, which is Singapore's latest major international art fair, will be launching their inaugural edition next week. And this fair is led by the same team behind uh, Taipei Dangdai and the upcoming uh, new uh, Tokyo Art Fair next year. But what's very interesting about the timing of this fair is that uh, ArtSG had a series of postponements since its announcement, since the announcement of its launch in 2018. But it's finally happening and opening its doors next week at the Marina Bay Sands Expo and Convention Center at the city's bayfront. And you, it's very, um, it's also interesting to see how uh, the level, the increased level of attention and interest in the Singapore art market has impacted the fair. So, for example, um, the fair, which will run from Wednesday through Sunday uh, next week, the number of galleries participating in the fair next week doubled from the original slate of 80 exhibitors that was announced in 2018. So now it's 160 or so galleries that are participating in the fair. And last year, Art Basel's parent company, MCH Group, also bought back a minority stake in Art SG um, after backing out of the fair in 2019. So you can see how these um, uh, various uh, shifts have happened because of the um, attention and focus on the Singapore art market. Um, but that's not solely focused on Singapore, though, to be honest. It's also because of the growing interest in uh, Southeast Asia. So one of the reasons there's so much international interest in Singapore is because of its proximity to Southeast Asia, which is one of the most uh, dynamic and diverse regions in the world with exciting artists, vibrant art scenes, leading curators, and strong collector bases in countries such as Indonesia and Philippines. Rena Davy, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Singapore. And that's all we have time for today's programme, I'm afraid. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Emma Sell and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researchers were Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Pamintun. And our studio manager was Adam Heaton. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. And The Globalist is back at the same time on Monday. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend. 